You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Just to let you know I'm not selling anything. His name's Charlie. Charlie? Yeah, Charlie. That's his name, Charlie. Really? Tell me about him. He likes me. He likes me very much. Your boyfriend, Charlie. He's a cop. this trigger nobody's gonna call it murder it's gonna be law enforcement wait charlie don't do it not yet if i tell you where it is what guarantee do i have that you won't drill me anyway Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know what they say, it takes a thief to catch a thief. Also joining us this week is author Dwayne Sprzynski. Hey guys, thanks for having me in your, your booth. You sound like you're in a booth. I am. Your booth, right? I'm trapped here. This week we are talking about The Burglar, not the film with Whoopi Goldberg. That's just called Burglar. What? This is The Burglar. Oh, did you watch the wrong movie again? Man. I mean, I'm as big of a fan as Whoopi is the next guy, but this week we're talking about The Burglar. The film was originally slated for release in 1955, but didn't hit theaters until 1957 when one of its stars, Jane Mansfield, had gained immense popularity. The film stars Dan Duryea as Nate Harbin, our titular burglar. He and his crew rob Sister Sarah, a Philadelphia spiritualist, of a pricey necklace. The crew stews, waiting for the heat to come off so they can fence the necklace and go on their merry way. However, things aren't quite so simple as that. We'll be talking more about the film, its screenwriter, David Goodis, and the 1971 adaption, La Casse. But first, Dwayne, as our guest, when was the first time you saw The Burglar, and what did you think? Well, it's funny. I, I'm pretty sure I was sitting next to you, Mike. <laughs> I saw this. <laughs> it was at Goodest Con, the very first Goodest Con, I think, in Philadelphia. What back in two thousand six or seven? You know, they showed the uh, the burglar, and I I, I love seeing it. It's my first time. Uh, I love seeing like little bits of Philadelphia. You don't see Philly too much in movies. You know, definitely not in the fifties. We were in no man's land. Uh, so it was, it was a blast. Uh, the movie, you know, it holds up. It's interesting, but I did I, I did enjoy it. I had not seen it until you told me to watch it for the show, and I have to say it was a pleasant surprise. And there's uh, some things about it that I find uh, very interesting in terms of structure of like things you wouldn't expect for basically, uh, I guess, what 
uh, at the time would be considered a low-budget B-movie. Yeah, very much a low-budget movie, very much a B-movie. And the whole thing that it wasn't even released when it was originally shot, I don't know what the story was there. But unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of scholarship about this film. There's not a whole lot of stuff written about Paul Wenko's. There's just, it's kind of a void out there. Um, you just hear little snatches. I was going to say, uh, I didn't know Harvey Weinstein was uh, running a film company in the mid-1950s. Yeah, oh yeah, he bought up the rights, he chopped the hell out of it, released it later on, and then dumped the original out on video. Um, yeah, the, you didn't notice that the voices were all dubbed and everything? No, no, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was even way back then, little Harvey Weinstein, little seven-year-old Harvey Weinstein was doing that. Uh, you know, with uh, great power comes, uh, never mind. There's not a whole lot of stuff about this film. I do remember watching this one with you, Dwayne, and really shitty VHS or like a 16 millimeter transfer of this thing. Fortunately, it has been restored and respected and kind of snuck out on this uh, Columbia three pack of uh, noir films or the, it's the third installation. I think there might be four films on the, on the pack, but yeah, no fanfare whatsoever. I know why though. This is, it's obvious why it's, it's the Philadelphia effect. I mean, it's a very much a homegrown production shot here, Written by a uh, David Goodis himself, a screenwriter here, based on Goodis's novel. I mean, it really is like the underdog of film noir. I think and that's that Philadelphia kind of stink does not wash off easily. Let me tell you, you got a good sense of Philadelphia from this film as you were watching it. I did. There's actually, it's funny. It comes in little in little snatches as if it's embarrassed to be set in Philadelphia. You know, <laughs> but if you're from here, you know it. You kind of see City Hall. I swear I see the L racing by, but I could be wrong. Uh, there's 30th Street Station, which, of course, is in two other Philly favorites of mine, Blowout and Witness, um, Independence Hall. I mean, actually, there's one little sequence, remember, where Nat is like uh, – he goes on a tour of Philadelphia. It makes no sense. He's in Independence Hall. And then the art museum hanging out for a while. Then Logan Fountain. It's like, where are you going, man? Where are you going? So that was kind of fun to see. But, yeah, if you blink, you miss Philadelphia. The movie starts out very interesting for me. And this one – I mean, as soon as the movie opened – I was down for this thing because it opens a little Citizen Kane-y, though Citizen Kane has that prologue, you know. But this starts with that kind of news-on-the-march type of newsreel that you're catching from inside of a theater. And they present it to you. I mean, I can't imagine watching this in a theater in 1957 because this thing comes on and there's no sense at all that you're watching a movie. It's like you're watching this newsreel. I even had the same thing. Like, (laughs) when I first started watching it, um, I'm like... What happened? I'm like, did someone dub something over the front of this? Because I didn't expect that at all. Like, there was absolutely no setup. I I didn't expect it. It starts with this, like, you know, movie tone news or whatever it is, uh, opening title card, and then it goes into the newsreel. And once it got through the, because there's there's three main stories that are in the newsreel, you know, it has to do with um, the, the, the Chinese on Formosa, and then there's this thing with pogoing ladies, and then it's Philadelphia and Sister Sarah, and that's how we're introduced to her. And eventually, after you get to the third one, then I think it goes inside the theater, and then you realize you're actually watching the movie. For me, I thought it was some sort of error <laughs> when I first started watching it, thinking, what did Mike send me? What is this? Is this a newsreel that I'm supposed to watch that's supposed to give me some background on this thing? This is the wrong file. <laughs> this guy's an idiot. Yeah, but I, I love that, like you were saying, that news on the March Citizen Caney kind of thing. And that's the thing is it's it's uh, it's basically the low-rent B-movie version of that. And it's, it's so much fun and it's interesting. And that's how we meet. Uh, I guess she would be uh, the L. Ron Hubbard of uh, 1950s spiritual scene in Philadelphia. 
was there a big spiritual movement going on in Philly that we didn't know about? It's funny. There was actually, there's some, there's a book written about it. I want to say more turn of the century versus the 1950s, but yeah, you know, you'll find a lot of scam artists here. And there was a sort of spiritual thing. I can't remember the details, but that's good. As I'm sure inspired by real life. We are inside the theater. We see Dan Durier watching this. We go out onto the street with him and up comes the title, the burglar over him. So we know this is the burglar that we're watching right now. Then it goes fairly quickly. We have a little bit of uh, Jane Mansfield going to visit Sister Sarah, coming back to the place. She's cased the joint. She lays out the thing. And rather than giving us the whole, here's how we're going to rob the place, we immediately go into the robbery, which I really appreciate. Because I think there are too many films where we see the planning and then the execution is kind of secondary. And this one, it just says, here's the map. Here's where she is. You got a 15 minute window while she watches this guy on television. And that's it. We got to go. And it just amps up the tension so quickly because you know exactly how long of a window they have. And we have this crew of four people, Nat, Baylock, Dahmer, and then Gladden. Gladden is, is the name of the Jane Mansfield character. And off they go into this. And I, actually, I think Gladden stays home. So it's the three of them going to rob Sister Sarah's place. And then the robbery, I think, is done very effectively. And right in the middle of it, we get an interruption when the cops come in and they start looking at the car. I don't know why they parked it right in front of the house. Seems a little silly to me. but. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're definitely suspicious of this car parked in this neighborhood and start looking at it and out comes Nat and he starts, you know, copping this whole thing of, oh, my car broke down. And I have to say, very good performance from Durier in this film. Yeah, I love the 1950s breathalyzer, too. Let me smell your... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just breezing the guy. Okay, yeah, you're good. I think that's like a point six, so we're all right. And uh, also you had something a little garlicky for lunch, sir. <laughs> right. You want to gargle now? Yeah. Here, here's some Listerine. Yeah, so we have the, the robbery successful, and then we have the follow-up to it, which, again, another really nice turn of direction because the way that we show – that Sister Sarah has been robbed. We have gone into her safe, taken this necklace, and we get all of these shots from inside of the safe as she has come upstairs and is getting ready for bed. And we just have this circle on screen from inside and her walking past the safe a few times. Yeah, speaking of gargling, and then <laughs> you know, seeing the, the safe open and gasping and then cut to the next scene really quickly. And then also all of this is set up going back to the newsreel about her in this house in this necklace so this is where the folks in the theater go ah okay we we have something here so she was basically sort of like you know waving the uh the the flag in front of the bull and just asking for it in in a particular way by showing off her jewels it's really quick setup really quick payoff which i appreciate and then you kind of go into this whole other film almost where it's the four of them, these three guys and this woman stewing for like, I don't know how long that they stew, but it just takes forever this part of the film. And it's really good that we had this kind of quick opening and this high tension and everything. Cause otherwise if it started with this part where they come in and they have the necklace and they start arguing about how much the necklace is worth, how they'll, how much they'll get from a fence and everything. I don't know if I would have been able to stay with the film. 
I mean, the thing for me is that the film is not really about the heist so much. The heist is no. just a way to get them to all be in the room together and that how that dynamic shifts. It's kind of like the attitude that I have about uh, zombie films, good zombie films, for example, like the original Dawn of the Dead. It's not really about the zombies. It's about how the people react to each other under pressure, how they all have their various things that they want when they're under pressure. And you see this interaction between all of them, between the four of them that are in there. You got the one guy who's like, all right, we got to go. We got to go. We got to turn this thing over. We got to get rid of this thing. I need the money. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I don't want to sit around here. And you got other people that's like, we're not doing that. We're going to stay. We're going to sit here. And then there's someone else who's like, well, we're going to, you know, let's take this and go to Baltimore and sell it because, you know, we can sell it faster there. And it's like, why go to Baltimore? We'll get less money for it. You know, so there's it's all these attitudes. It's, it's um, you, you know, I, th- I think uh, fans of modern, you know, sort of heist film and stuff like that will, will it, at least in idea, see something like a Reservoir Dogs where they're all in the room together. And they're like, OK, well, who's doing what? You know, what are we doing? Where's the other guy? And stuff like that. So it's, it's really about those interactions among each other it's not it really has nothing to do with the heist yeah i mean i think it's interesting that you see kind of the the makeshift crime family it's uh, as dysfunctional as most families and everyone looks very unhappy and sweating and miserable <laughs> going out of their skin much like most families i just I, I it was actually you're right if it started with that it would have been sort of like bad you know college play you know of the heist going wrong but i do like that that's sort of the afterburn and we can see you know this is actually this is pure goodness it's, you know, your hero, you know, with a sort of misfit family he's gathered around him, either accidentally or on purpose. He's got, you know, Nat calls the organization, his little team, a very grand term for basically <laughs> two, two dudes and his, you know, his kid sister, essentially. Yeah, this is pure goodness because he's done this thing so many times and he, and he does it so well. I mean, especially, uh, I mean, the burglar to me goes right alongside Black Friday. Those two books are so similar as far as these little makeshift families and the dynamics between them, the sexual tension that's going on. I mean, I think in Black Friday you have two women. In this one, you just have the one. And so there's this whole idea of, you know, is Nat in love with Gladden? Is he her protector? What necessarily is that relationship? But for sure, he wants to protect her from um, Domer. And there's that whole thing going on where she's going to scratch his eyes out and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it's just the, the tension will build and it explodes a little bit, but not terribly much. And the, the, then it goes back down again. And you have these nice moments in here. I think the nicest one for me is Balak when he does this little speech about how he wants to get away oh, yeah. and the music turns and becomes this kind of, you know, island theme and everything. And he's just, they give the guy probably, what, three minutes to do this monologue. And for me, it's great. And especially, again, the way that it's shot. I think Wencoast was really, this was his first film, and he's just, all the stops are gone. And he is shooting this in a mirror, and then as the fantasy kind of dissolves, he pulls back from the mirror, and you see the real Balak in front of it. And so it's like, yep, that's your projection. You're never going to get there. So eventually we know that, you know, this this is your ranch in the sky kind of thing. You'll never get this, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it's pure goodness. Like, goodness doesn't the novels often, these flights of fancy, where these sort of fantasy, just to underscore how miserable reality is, <laughs> here's where your life could be. You'd be top of the charts. You'd be this, you know, a big success on an island somewhere. But no, guess what? You're sweating your ass off in a house somewhere in Philadelphia. 
stuck there with all these guys and this girl who won't give you the time of day. I mean, there's no, there's no relationship between him and uh, and Gladden here at all. It's just yeah. he's kind of off to the side. Well, you know, speaking of that girl, I <laughs> looked at the credits and I was like, oh, Jane Mansfield, right? So I'm watching, I'm watching, and I'm like, where's Jane Mansfield? <laughs> just, it took me like a good half hour to realize that the thin little thing, the thin little blonde thing who looks about 15 in this movie was Jane Mansfield because I'm not used to her looking first that small and that young. And that was the thing that was quite amazing to me watching this film. Speaking of young, I love at one point Dan Duryea gets asked how old he is. And he's like, oh, 35. And I'm like, yeah, no. (laughs) I looked him up and he was 50 at the time. He doesn't even look 50 in some shots. He looks a lot older. But there are some times where he does look younger. And he's a handsome man. But, yeah, it was just like, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you can pull off 35. It's a hard 35 for him. You know, orphan. You know, a burglar all his life, taking care of this bratty kid sister type. Yeah, it's hard 35. Well, at the same time as I was looking at it, I go, he's only a year younger than me? Damn, I, <laughs> I'm a horrible too. We do get the origin of Durier. You know, you mentioned that he has been this thief for all of his life. And we get this whole little vignette going on during this part, during the stew scene. And this is... Again, pure goodness. I mean, the voiceover is all done in second person. You know, we talked a lot about second person when we did Blast of Silence. And Goodis was great for going from third person to second person, sometimes into first, but he would do this kind of shift in the narrative and everything. And it just was pure him as he's describing all of Nat's feelings as he has been taken in by this uh, thief whose name was Gladden. His last name was Gladden. And then eventually the daughter gets the first name. So I guess her name officially is Gladden Gladden, (laughs) which is kind of weird. And how he gets taken in and he gets raised and gets shown how to do this. And then he makes this one error and the guy ends up paying the price. And now he feels responsible for Jane Mansfield's character. And so he is kind of this protector. But also, I think they explore this more in the book, that there's a little bit more feeling towards her. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Those those second person sequences, I love them in Goodis' books. And to me, it always strikes me as like God – reading your sins to you. You know, he's like telling you what you did wrong. Here's your life, kid. Here's what you want. And here's why you still suck. You know, I, I love those sequences there. I mean, I'm glad they made it and made it this film. It's just amazing. Yeah. That, it was very nice to see in the way that it's shot in this kind of dreamlike state and everything. I was like, yeah, yeah, this really, this really works. And just the kind of, I don't want to say cheap sets, but they were almost like no sets. It was all filmed in like the black, and then you had like the door opening and the windows and everything. So it was very nice, very nicely shot. I mean, I throughout the entire film, I was just so impressed with the way that this thing looked. So finally, at one point, we have after Dahmer has been going after Gladden, uh, Nat decides to send her off, send her over to Atlantic City, which, as somebody from Detroit, I always forget that Atlantic City is pretty close to Philly, apparently. Apparently. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, if you drive really fast, about an hour. So okay. If you can do that. Well, she takes a train, right. so hopefully it gets there pretty quickly. She gets over there, and she hooks up with this guy, Charlie. And then, meanwhile, back in Philly, we have Nat getting picked up by this girl, Della. 
And that kind of really starts our next act of the film where we have Charlie having this really nice night with this lady. It's either right before that or right after that it goes on that tour of Philadelphia you're talking about. Right, exactly. Does he go up to the Rocky Steps? Is he up there? He is, actually. You don't see the the steps, the Rocky Steps proper, but he's on top of the steps there, which is funny. This cracks me up that – you know, uh, you show so much of the city, and you gotta go to the old standbys. Let's show the art museum. Let's show City Hall. You know, it's kind of funny. We have this nice night with him and this woman, and again, I think they could have spent a little bit more time because they seem to really form this bond that will come back later in the film. But you don't necessarily get that from like what a couple quick scenes that we have here, and there's not a whole lot of time that seems to pass between Nat and Della. But they definitely have something which will come back later on. And then we get um, very quickly, he finds out that Della is in cahoots with this Charlie guy. And Charlie is there in Atlantic City. He's come back and he's talking with Della. So these two are on to Nat and his crew. And they know that they were the ones that took this necklace. And they're trying to play both sides of the fence. Stella's trying to play Nat when we've got Charlie trying to play Gladden. And that's when all hell kind of breaks loose with this film. And that's, we go to, to Atlantic city, get a lot of Atlantic city stuff, which I find very cool. And especially because, you know, just a few months ago, Rob and I talked about King of Marvin gardens. So we're seeing these same boardwalks and everything just a little bit, a few years beforehand, or I guess about 20 years before when it was still kind of a much, uh, much more lively town. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just actually going back to Nat, you know, overhearing, you know, the plot, I gotta say that, but it kind of took me out of the movie because, you know, Nat is just a super cautious pro burglar, you know, stay quiet, stay calm. And he's running his mouth off to this woman he met in a bar. Like, <laughs> it's amazing that how much he's, you know, gushing with all of the, and everything. Uh, I was kind of like, what? No, that's not a professional burglar. Amateur. Unless she roofied him. <laughs> pull, maybe pull the Cosby? Some of that Spanish fly. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But yeah, Atlantic City, uh, that was, it was fun to, uh, to get a trip down the shore. You're right. I, it is before it got super seedy in the 70s. Like the 50s, it still kind of was a family resort. You know, not that I was alive back then, but I hear stories. Yeah, it was, you know, a place you go. And for the working man, the working Philadelphia, you could afford to hop a train or drive an hour and a half down there and go to the steel pier, go watch a horse jump into the ocean, that sort of thing. And I love the way that they come to the city because it's they've been discovered by the police because this whole time, too, we have this kind of police procedural that's running kind of parallel to this other narrative, which is interesting. You don't really get into these cops' lives, but they're just there. There's this kind of looming threat throughout this entire film. And we get that they go through this toll booth, and and he's recognized because they've had a sketch of what he looks like, and they end up, uh, I think, like, I think Dahmer bites him right around this time. And so then it's just... um, Nat and Baylock coming into Atlantic City, coming in through the backwoods and like through the reeds and everything, which is just a really cool way to enter the city and have it kind of off in the distance. It's kind of like Oz or something. And they're coming through these reeds and they and <laughs> they find a very convenient abandoned little house here and just take it over. No one's there. I guess they're, uh, you know, weekenders, I guess, live in Philadelphia and have a wooden shack down by the bay, you know, on, <laughs> for weekends. Um, yeah, it was, it was very convenient. Um, I do love that out of the weeds kind of look, which is actually how you should go to Atlantic City. You should, you know, break down halfway, dead body in your car, walk through the woods and kind of find it. Like an oasis. That's the way to go to Atlantic City. That's how you do AC. Go down to the shack. <laughs> 
Come on down to Atlantic City and hang out on my shack for the weekend. <laughs> it's walking distance from the boardwalk. Yeah. But it's out of the way enough. <laughs> there's actually a great thing. The whole sequence where, you know, there's a race back to Gladden or, you know, back to the shack. It takes so so much it, – it's like about a two-minute walk, I think, from the shack to the boardwalk versus, you know, that long – all of a sudden it's day to night. It's too many yeah. hours have gone by. It's like, what? It's like, you know, I, I can run there <laughs> in a minute. Yeah, certain times he's right there. Other times, just depending on the uh, the amount of uh, tension that we want to drive in these scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there's a lot of back and forth going on. Him finding Gladden, trying to convince her about this cop, and her you know refusing. Him leaving the necklace with her, and yada yada yada. But it just it, it culminates in a very nice way, I have to say. And I I appreciate the way that this thing is kind of pulled off. And then we do have uh, uh, spoilers ahead, by the way. But we do have the death of. Balok, though, I didn't really necessarily understand that he was dead for the longest time. I kept waiting for him to come back. Yeah. I was wanting him to do like a Freddy from Black Shampoo and kind of save the day at the very end, you know, and like stab Charlie or something with a pool cue. I don't know. But yeah, it just, uh, it was like, all right, I guess he's out of the picture now. And so then we have the two couples kind of facing off, Nat and Gladden and then Della and Charlie. And I like the way that Della is there and kind of witnessing all this stuff that's going on, but yet she's kind of out of the picture. Yeah, it was that was a weird, you know, kind of, I don't know, she kind of turned around a few times. I guess she was faithful to Charlie for about three minutes before she fell for Nat, you know, in their, their night together. Yeah, it was kind of odd. You know, I, I kind of uh, wasn't sure about her. Her and Charlie were weird characters. Like, was boyfriend-girlfriend kind of a cop, you know, and, and side piece? I wasn't sure what their deal was. Then we come to the end of the film, and I really don't want to say a whole lot about the end of the film, other than it is markedly different than the book. And the book, the way that that ends to me, is one of the most indelible images of, of a book. I oh, mean, yeah. the way that I have this thing pictured in my head is just amazing. I will, rather than say how the movie ends, let's talk a little bit about how the book ends, just for if people end up seeing the burglar. Yeah. The, the book ends with Gladden killing Charlie. Della is out of the picture. Kills Charlie on the beach, because they are there beneath the boardwalk here in Atlantic City. Nat is there with uh, with her. All of these people are coming down to the beach to see what the shots were because she ends up shooting him. They have no place to go other than going into the water. And the plan is we are going to go into the water. We're going to swim out, come back around the long way, and everything will be fine. And, oh, my God, this – I was – shocked when i reread this the other day because i forgot how long the scene goes on but it is just fantastic oh yeah no i, I love I me mean, the movie ending i won't really think but it's sort of noir light you know it's noirish but kind of light the, the book is full-on big-ass noir <laughs> it's, it's a masterful last chapter capital n with this thing yeah and yeah, because Charlie at one point had been choking Nat, so Nat's really kind of weak and everything, and he's trying to swim, trying to keep the money that he has with him, slipping it in his sock, but yet he, he knows that he's being dragged down by his clothes, so trying to remove the clothes, Gladden's trying to get out of her clothes, and they just keep swimming, and they keep doing this whole thing like, yeah, we'll swim back in a little bit, once the beach is clear, we'll come back, and it'll be absolutely fine, and just they keep going farther and farther out. And then next thing you know, they just start going down. And just the the way that Goodis writes 
Gladden under the water and Nat trying to reach her. Yeah. It's yeah. just beautiful, beautiful prose. And I'm sure you know that the very last uh, David Goodis novel, Somebody's Done For, ends in a very similar way, except for one character. You know, it's out there drowning, trying to stay above the water. I mean, if it were Hollywood, Goodis would have died drowning, you know, <laughs> his fate. Yeah. That's a, a constant recurring you know, image for him. But nothing more horrifying. I mean, that's right there's noir, you know, one lone person trying to paddle against an ocean that wants to suck you into it. Yeah, and he um, had a really good drowning scene in The Wounded and the Slain, too. And there was one part where it was just like he talks about how he just wants to give up. You know, the main character just wants to give up. And just right. this whole idea of these drowning characters. And because so many – I'm very surprised. Nat is one of the few characters that doesn't go from this place of prestige down to the gutter because there are so many characters that have that market descent. You know, right. we talked last year or two years ago, I should say, about Shoot the Piano Player and the way that Charlie, the piano player in that one, I know Charlie's one of the uh, goodest's favorite characters' names, the way that he goes from this concert hall pianist and how great everything is and all this to playing piano at this rinky-dink club and kind of getting involved. And again, you have that kind of stewing scene with him and his brothers out at their their place because his brothers are thieves. Or, or the artist in Nightfall who takes that tremendous fall and everything. So it's just, Nat has never been this master burglar, so he wasn't you know, the, the, the king shit when it came to burglary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now he's, you know, lucky to scrape by, but he's the whole time in this in this movie, he's lucky to scrape by. So he starts at the bottom and just goes down from there. <laughs> exactly. It's very funny to me because that descent is very much mirrored in Goodis's life. I mean, he had been in Hollywood just prior to this. He had gone out there in the late 40s, I believe, to uh, – he had written a story. He had written a, a full-length book, and then he was writing this story that was getting published in the Saturday Evening Post that eventually became uh, Dark Passage, which eventually became a movie called Dark Passage. And then from there – he didn't do a whole lot of stuff. There's a couple adaptations. He redid the the he did some work on the letter, which became the what is it, the unfaithful. Right. Right. He kind of adapted his own work a little bit. He was writing of missing persons and also making a, a novel out of that at the same time. But it's like it was like this weird period where he's like living on this guy's couch when he's out in, in Hollywood, this cheap bastard, basically. <laughs> yeah. There's a great chapter in a Woody Houts book, um, Heartbreak and Vine, all about, you know, crime writers who go to Hollywood to try to make it big. And his, the stories are amazing. Like he would go to Hollywood parties in a ratty white robe and try to pass himself off as a, as a Russian exile, you know, <laughs> just walk around and he would uh, just do bizarre stuff, drive the, uh, the same old ratty, like, you know, con you know convertible around town. Uh, he's not fit in with the flashy uh, L.A. set, to say the least. No, not at all. And I think there was a, a lot of tension between him, his settings, and just he was not a Hollywood mover and shaker. No, no, not the least. I mean, he preferred to go to bullfights in Tijuana. You know, he would go down to Watts for jazz clubs, you know, rib joints. Um, yeah, he was not, you know, part of that, you know, set at, um, you know, Musso and Frank necessarily. No, he's not hanging out the Brown Derby kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's uh, he quickly goes back to Philadelphia, and this really is kind of one of the other bright spots for him. I mean, he's doing 
so many great novels. He's turning out a novel a year, pretty much. And I don't know how he got involved doing The Burglar. I mean, he had written the book and he adapted it himself, so that's why we have this great prose that goes on. I know some people have actually criticized the dialogue for this, but for me, you know, it it, it works very well. It does sound bookish at times, but I love Goodis, so I'm I'm all about it. Yeah, I do wonder how it came about. I think I, I'm pretty sure I think that Paul Wenkos and Goodis were friends somehow, or met each other at some point, and. That, I think, connection may have sparked the film. You know, uh, Wenkos was looking for his first feature film, and, you know, Goodis had this novel. He wanted to adapt it himself. You know, maybe it was a way of, like, vindicating himself. Like, I can do this. I can write, you know, adapt now books and make it as a screenwriter in his own way. So, to me, it was actually a late triumph for him after a not-so-great Hollywood experience. Well, I tried to read Garnier's biography of Goodis the other day, and he does – the connection is – the guy who Goodis was staying on his couch oh, when he was out. Right. In, yes, that's right. Yeah. It was that guy's either wife or girlfriend eventually became the wife of Paul Wenkos. Right. So she was very familiar with this eccentric character who was staying on her either former boyfriend or husband's couch. <laughs> I was scouring that book, man. I, I love all the stories that are, are in that uh, A Life in Black and White. It, but it's it's really fragmented, yeah. and it's like it, it's. It, I really wish that they had had a better editor kind of go through and make it a little bit more linear, because especially they had this really nice interview with Wenkos in there, but really nothing very much else about the burglar. So it's like, oh, I want more information. Come on. Oh, I, I do think though that you know Goodis's life is itself fragmented. I think that you know while the book is actually great, it's almost a detective story. You know, it's it's you know it trying is. to kind of. On the trail of a guy who's at the time he was trying was in the early 80s he was doing this book, and good has been gone for 20 years. So you know I, I kind of I do I think it's great what he found. I think a lot of it's lost the time. You know no one's keeping track of this stuff. Um, I mean I love the idea that he talked to some. Um, you know, people on the Warner lot, and no one remembered Goodis. It's like, oh, who was he? Was here in the writers' room? You know, in the writers' uh, writers' building, showing him pictures, and they're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that guy. Yeah, yeah, like a ghost, kind of you know, moving through Hollywood undetected. I, I do kind of love that. Well, yeah, so much of like even looking at like Larry Withers' films, you know, David Goodis to a pulp. I mean, that is a, another detective story. That whole idea of you know the mysterious woman that Goodis married that nobody knew about and trying to find Goodis kind of through her and stuff. It's like nobody could get a beat on this guy. The truth is, though, I think writers, you know, I think leave all all kinds of clues in their books. I mean, the best clues we have are those you know dozen novels he left behind in hidden ways. That's all him. You know, <laughs> I really do. That to me is like, I kind of, I feel like I know him through his books. Good thing Jane Mansfield became popular because otherwise I don't know if the burglar ever would have seen the light of day. Very true. And she kind of came to the fore with will success spoil rock hunter and the girl can't help it, which is just her. That is just her vehicle, man. Yeah. And you don't get more Jane Mansfieldy than that film. Like you were saying, Rob, I did not expect Jane Mansfield to look the way she does in The Burglar. I really expected. I mean, I think all three of us and probably a lot of the listeners have seen that picture of Sophia Loren giving the stink eye to Jane Mansfield where she's about to bust out of that dress. That's the Jane Mansfield I know. Yeah, and that's the thing that's funny when watching this is that she's um, she's kind of dressed down. Like, you're used to something a little more glamorous and high gloss, and here she's just kind of simple. And, uh, you know, not a lot of makeup, uh, not popping out of her 
you know, top, things like that. That's why I was like, who is that? And then I think the fact that it was a couple of years earlier also makes her look younger than what I remember from, you know, the period when she was popular. So for me, it was a bit like, okay, well, Jane Mansfield's going to show up at some point. (laughs) Credits. I love those eyebrows, man. I think Chris Faust calls those bitch eyebrows. Because those things are serious. You could cut yourself on those eyebrows, man. They're great. And yeah, unfortunately, she would only be with us for like another 12 years. So like all those images that we have in our heads of Jane Mansfield are from that period afterwards when she was doing that kind of, you know, Marilyn Monroe-esque kind of thing. And she's a little campy and everything. But I, I thought she, I mean, she gave an a great performance in the burglar yeah i thought so too you know i i you know i kind i knew why he wasn't going for it but he kind of the whole you're watching their scenes with you know with dan Duryea and and, and jane you're like come on kiss her just kiss her give her give her, give yeah. her something <laughs> i said it before this was like one of her first roles i mean since this came out later i mean it looks like she was in this after she had already been established but really like the girl can't help it and stuff was was after this one female jungle was after this one so the the ways that we know this character and it to me, she's one of the more interesting people. I know, I know a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, Marilyn Monroe, she's such a tragic figure and everything. But Mansfield, to me, is like, you know, there's there's dirt on that and uh, under those nails and everything. And that's what I kind of appreciate is that she had – she was living life. Yeah, and now she's just kind of almost like a punchline and crash, and that's about uh, it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back after these brief but important messages. Hello, this is Mike from the Badasses, Boobs, and BodyCounts.com website and podcast. At the BBNBC website, I post thoughts, or reviews if you will, of lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror films. In the all-new BBNBC podcast, I talk about films of the same genre, but usually with a guest host. We discuss films such as... And I'm going to let them know that Dolomite is back on the scene. I'm going to let them know that Dolomite is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. Dolomite, which falls into the badass category. We also look at films like... I should have taken you for a stone-cold dyke from the start. Oh, yeah. Pervert. In the boobs category. In the body counts category, we cover films like... What's going on here? What do you think you're doing? We're having an orgy. What's it to you? Enjoying the fun? You all think you're so smart, don't you? Well, you ain't. You ain't so damn smart after all. You just won't wait to see. Somebody's always trying to spoil our fun. But we have a devil of a good time. Satan's cheerleaders. And last but not least, we also look at films such as... I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. We only want to know where Valley Lodge is. Which way do we go? Manos, the hands of fate, in the everything else category. The BBNBC website is located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. And the BBNBC podcast can be downloaded from the iTunes store, the BBNBC website, and is also now available on Stitcher Smart Radio. Just do a search on BBNBC podcast to start listening. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, 
a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. the projection booth this week we're talking about the burglar in this half of the show we'll be talking about the 1971 adaptation of the film i don't speak french so i call it la casse but it could be la casse i don't know the burglars the casse full yes <laughs> oh sorry never mind wrong film the film was written produced and directed by henri vernier Sure. Who made several great crime films in the 1970s, including The Sicilian Clan and Fear Over the City. And this one transfers the action from Philadelphia over to Europe, ooh, specifically ooh. Athens. Yeah, sorry. And it stars Jean-Paul Belmondo as Azad. He's the titular burglar in this one. And this time around, there's a lot more of the relationship between Azad and the corrupt cop, who was Charlie in the other film. This time, he is Abel Zakaria, played by Omar Sharif. So now, I know, Rob, you didn't have a chance to watch this, so uh, we'll try to take it easy on you. Dwayne, didn't you kind of like present this film or something? There was a screening of this in Philly a few years ago, right? Actually, just last April, last year, uh, it was part of Philadelphia Film Festival, and they invited a bunch of us to sort of serve as a panel for a discussion after the film. And that had been the first time I had seen it. And I was kind of gobsmacked, like, wow, <laughs> that was, you know, that was different. Very, enjoyable. very different. Yeah. I mean, that was very enjoyable in a Euro crime kind of way. Uh, but, you know, Athens is not quite Philadelphia. And I kind of, you know, saw 
less and less of goodest, that good goodest stuff you're going for, you know, in this film. Yeah, this is very much it's a it's a more of a two person play between Belmondo and Sharif. I mean, I don't even think I would know the other characters' names. The Gladden character is literally far removed from the action for almost the majority of the film. That whole idea of like sending her to Atlantic City happens almost at like minute twenty one or something. <laughs> right. The film to me, it's a, and I don't want this to sound bad, but it, it, it might to some people. It's a series of setups. You know, it's a series of of just wonderful big scenes and um, set pieces. I guess is the word I'm looking for. And then there's a little bit of stuff in between it. They're like the tiles of this mosaic and some big ass tiles. I mean, the first part of the film is the robbery. And it goes on for about 20 minutes yeah. with no dialogue whatsoever. Like, I didn't even realize if my subtitles were working or not when I was watching this until finally Abel, uh, the Omar Sharif character, shows up and has this conversation with the Nat character by Jean-Paul Belmondo. And then it's like, oh, shit, subtitles aren't working. <laughs> but, <laughs> but otherwise, I mean, this whole thing, it, it felt very like Rafifi to me, this long, very tense, wordless robbery. And I just, I really dug it. I mean, this is a terrific robbery. This is like, this is almost Jean-Pierre Melville type tension that this guy is cranking up here and i really love yeah, it yeah it was like 1971 state of the art you know breaking in and stealing something i i, I kind of love the, the the technology the whole the whole deal it was riveting for 20 minutes i thought I'd, I'd be bored but it was really riveting and then they play it smart again they have like a little bit of stuff in between and then bam car chase yep. amazing car chase too and that's again right there with belmondo and sharif and they're driving these like little shitbox cars tearing ass around Athens <laughs> and that had to go on for like another 10 minutes. So it's just like these big set pieces going on and in between here. And I just loved it. I was just eating this movie up. I can't say that it's a great movie, but there are so many great parts to it. You know, that's what I remember, I remember, you know, all these parts, um, the car chase is like very much like, you know, Jason Bourne going <laughs> crazy ass, you know, boxy car chase. Uh, yeah. Again, the, you know, the, 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 the sequence in the kind of fun house, I mean, all these like great, great sequences, I just I kind of lost track of the book I, I, I had in my head of the burglar. You know, this novel right. was lost to me. Oh yeah, yeah. This is I mean, other than the title, I mean, you really yeah. and the the title and the opening robbery are about it. And that you know, and it's different setup for the who, what they're robbing, who they're robbing, the reasons, and everything. It's so far removed. The only other thing I think is that you have this corrupt cop who's working in the system when he wants to, working out of the outside the system when he wants to take these jewels from this burglary gang. Wants it both ways, and he won't uh, split with. <laughs> and that's the best part to me is Belmondo is willing to split. The loot. He is fine doing that, (laughs) but Omar Sharif wants the whole thing. And we find that out over, to me, the best scene of the film, which is this Greek diner scene, the scene where we have Sharif coming in and Belmondo's there and he's eating steak and fries. And Sharif's like, no, no, no. 
you're in Greece. Let me show you how real Greeks eat. And it just becomes this amazing – it's food porn all over the place. Fucking moussaka <laughs> and grape leaves and just all this good stuff. I was so hungry. I wanted to go down to Greek town right after this. I was just like, come on. This is amazing. And them having this kind of – fight as they're eating was great this whole like everything has this double meaning as they're going through the menu and stuff and when belmondo tries to split the dessert and omar sharif's just like nope won't do it can't split it <laughs> yeah, that's great i can't wait for anthony bourdain to pop, pop out of the background you know it's got the food sequence was you know again they're very foodie friendly oh yeah totally yeah, this is something that would really go over well today. And I think the whole movie kind of holds up because there are a lot of these great sequences in here. You know, I, uh, the, there's a sequence that was in uh, Mike Malloy's documentary about Eurocrime. And I'd forgotten that it was in this film. It's the sequence with uh, the quarry when they dump out the back of the this truck that Belmondo has escaped in. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Just amazing, and he did all of his own stunts, yeah, and they make sure you know yeah. that this is him. That's incredible. That was incredible. I mean, I, I actually watching it couldn't believe I was watching this stuff pre CGI, pre you know. I just thought, what? How, how impressive? Um, and I'm mean, impressed no one got killed <laughs> when making this film. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Between the car chase and that that one stunt was just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and then of all people, Diane Cannon is in this, you know, we, <laughs> we usually see like at least one American actor kind of snuck into these films. So you have that homegrown audience appeal kind of thing. Yeah. Diane Cannon, not necessarily somebody I expected to see in this. No, was she the Gladden character? I lost track. Who was she supposed to be? Just, or is it a visitor? She would have been the delicate. Oh, delicate. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he finds out that she and Omar Sharif are a couple. Oh, right, right. That's right. She has this modern machine. Basically, it's a clapper. So she <laughs> claps right. once to turn the lights off and claps twice to turn them back on. And I love that they set this up, and within a few minutes, she goes out of the room. He's looking through her stuff, finds a picture of her and Omar Sharif, comes back in. He starts smacking her around, and the light's going on and off. <laughs> <laughs> at the at the festival, the audience lost it. That sequence, they were just oh flying, yeah, rolling in this. It was great. It was like the most fun misogyny I've seen in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> insane, insane. Yeah, and then I love too that uh, you know you mentioned Witness earlier, and I was totally reminded of Witness at the end of this film because Sharif, who is just so fucking greedy, he just will not split dies trying to get these jewels while he's being buried in corn. Which actually to me is great. It brings it back to Philadelphia. Cause of course, witness is a Philadelphia film. You know, we're going back to Philly. That's right. <laughs> that redeems. No, actually I, I, it's just so funny. I, I loved it for what it was. If you told me, didn't tell me it was a good adaptation. I would have never known, never suspected that this was, you know, came from the mind of David Goodis, but on its own, really, really enjoyable far more than I thought I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really have to recommend this one. And unfortunately, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how tough it was to find Burglar, uh, the the Wencos film. It is really tough to find this movie. I mean, I ended up getting this one a long time ago off of eBay. It was this English dubbed version of it because it was a Euro European film and it was brought over and dubbed and everything. And now 
I can't even find that. I've been finding a um, what is allegedly a longer version of it. I can't even find my English print to compare, but it was a really beautiful version of it and subtitled. So everybody except for Diane Cannon seems to be speaking French. It seems like it's Sharif doing his own voice. It seems like it's definitely Belmondo doing his own voice. So it seems like a much more genuine film, even though I know they probably post-dubbed everything, but just to hear those actors doing their own lines, I really kind of appreciate and Sharif, man, he is so freaking handsome in this movie. Just looking so good. Yeah. It's funny. In the, the corrupt cop and, and the burglar, I swear he was a, a ringer for David Goodis himself. He had that sort of David Goodis look about him, you know? Totally did. Yes. And in this case, we have, I think actually he's sort of the hero in a, in a weird way. I mean, there's, you know, it's a two-hander, obviously. But, yeah, he almost, almost root for Omar Sharif in this. Almost, yeah. And Belmondo, I mean, Belmondo is – I can't say that he's hes an attractive, like traditionally attractive guy, but he looks so good in this. And he's just – he's got that great face. Just I want to watch this guy when I see him on screen. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. This doesn't strike me as noir whatsoever. I mean, you know, no. it, it's just sort of no one's doomed. Everyone's sort of like successful and kind of, you know, really good at what they do, unlike, you know, um, Nat's, you know, his sort of weird organization – kind of a bunch of losers, <laughs> misfits. These guys are like, you know, they're sort of, they're fun. They're interesting to follow. They're fun people. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, have you ever seen and hope to die? No, no. That's another adaptation. That's a French adaptation of uh, black Friday. Mm, okay. And that one, I have to say feels much more good as esque, you know, it's not as good as, as like Rue Babar or moon in the gutter or anything, but it, it has that, darkness to it and it was right around the same year yeah this one is it's it's a great it's a euro crime caper and yeah the like what the one guy from the gang dies otherwise we're all just kind of getting away scot-free <laughs> yeah. and yeah kind of reminded me it, it was a little like uh have you ever seen top copy top copy oh 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 no i haven't that's a classic yeah heist film no yeah, it reminded me of that too. So I guess I guess the first one reminded me more of Rafifi, and this one reminded me more of Top Copy, which I think they're both like Jules Dessin films or something. So uh, definitely different eras of his directing work, though. Interesting. What are some of your other favorite uh, goodest adaptations? I, I do. I love Dark Passage. You know, I, I, I have a lot of fun with that. Um, I actually went to San Francisco a couple of years ago and did the whole walking around to see the uh, you know the, the filming locations, which are still around mostly which is kind of fun that's just you know i know that it's gimmicky the whole you know my face is wrapped up and i don't want to watch the first third of the movie through my eyes you know kind of thing but i do love it and beyond that you know i don't know it's kind of hit or miss with the goodness um how about you any uh, uh, gems we should be looking for uh yeah i agree with you dark passage is terrific and um i mean moon in the gutter is mm. is another terrific film true and that's one though that i've read that there was a much longer version of that never got released and unfortunately was just you know the rest of it was thrown away so there's not a longer version that we're waiting to see at some point but what was out there i thought was terrific and i have to say uh street and return is interesting i can't say it's great but it's definitely interesting yeah yeah oh, of course you know shoot the piano player that's you know oh fuck yeah. yeah you know probably i mean I don't, that, 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 the best goodest adaptation probably i'm guessing 
And Nightfall is very good too. That's uh, oh, Aldo course, Ray that's and right. Matt. That's also great. Yeah, geez, I forgot about that one. I think Aldo Ray is the only person who ever made it into two Goodest adaptations because he was also in that uh, And Hope to Die. Oh, interesting. Very cool. And and there's one with um, oh god, what is her name? The the Rob, who is that beautiful woman who is in possession? Isabella Johnny. Yes, there's one with Isabella Johnny. Um, that's the adaptation of. Um, the Wounded and the Slain. It's uh, Descent into Hell. Oh, that's great. That's great. It's an, another French one that was from like the mid-80s, and that was really good. So, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think we've had, other than the uh, TV adaptation of The Professional Man from Fallen Angels and the Edge, I don't think we've had another Goodest adaptation right. since then. So well, it's been... Yeah. Well, Mike and Rob, actually, what Goodest novel would you most want to see adapted by a modern-day director? They still haven't done Cassidy's Girl, and I would love them to do Cassidy's Girl. Yes. Which is weird, because that's like one of his most successful novels, but they've never attempted that one. I know there was a guy who was talking about doing it for a while. I don't know where that project is, though. Yeah, it was um, Ed Holub. He was um, wanted to sort of set it down in New Orleans. He was at NoirCon a couple years ago, and I think he's still working on it, uh, which would be cool. More power to him. Again, I'm a stickler, but I got to think you got to set goodness in Philadelphia. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I kind of want to see the, those streets, you know, and that, that's how the books for me, I first came to go to this because I heard he, you know, set his books here in Philly and I had no idea how much he set his books, you know, to the point where, you know, the neighborhood where I grew up in Frankfurt, he features in, um, of tender sin, you know, there's a tenderloin, a lost kind of vice district in Philadelphia that he features in the same novel. So he really is, he, he sets things in the streets of the city. I would love to see just that, that, that kind of, you know, more than the burglar did, really kind of shoot it, you know, hardcore in the city before it disappears. Yeah, it was so nice, all this on-location shooting, because you're right, they just didn't do that, you know, and even when it came to Films Noir, it was like, it was the rarity where it was shot on location, yeah, you know. True. Yeah, so there were so many that were kind of studio-bound, but then I think the, you know, there, there were, of course, ones that would go outside of that, and that's where they really kind of cooked, you know, it's like that that second half of the Prowler, where you're just out in the, the you know, the, the desert and everything, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> so, not that it really matters, I mean, you can be studio-bound or out in the out in the wild, as long as you got the story, it's there. But yeah, seeing those streets of Philadelphia was really nice to to experience during that. It was definitely different than Nightfall, where it was like, you know, oh, this is Philadelphia by way of California. You know, <laughs> actually, wasn't Nightfall set in New York City? I think I'm pretty sure it was New York. So I think you're right. So it didn't have you know it didn't have to be Philly, but um, it felt like yeah, New York as by way of LA, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I mean that opening of Black Friday is the one that always gets me, where it's the him looking for the coat, oh, yeah. you know, oh, and just describing that Philadelphia winter and trying to escape from the guys and everything, and you get a lot of that in um, uh, Shoot the Piano Player, where you feel like how cold it is, and uh, just the Charlie out in the back of uh, that alley fighting the guy from the from the piano bar and everything, and you get that real sense there. I think uh, um, they really kind of capture that, but. But, yeah, just as far as books go, I mean, that you feel cold when you read Black Friday. And you know what? I think it works so well because Goodness himself clearly walked the streets while doing research for his books. I mean, a couple of years ago, Lou Boxer, who's the, you know, the, the organizer of Noircon, we kind of did – we did this every year or so of a bus tour of you know, Goodness locations. And we kind of – every year choose a new book that's kind of scout locations see, okay, what's where? 
Uh, there's still bars still there where he mentions. And last year we did Moon in the Gutter, and we found like the actual the street. He changed one name of the street, and we found a bar that may have been that bar in the book, which is kind of thrilling. You know, thinking Goodis actually walked these streets, did his own location scouting you know, for his novels, and was pretty faithful. Uh, I'm, I'm still impressed by that, and kind of that inspires me to really, you know, make it as real as possible. Um, so if, you know, one day, 50 years from now, some lone noir nerd is reading my book and think, oh, well, this Wojcicki said things here. Oh my God, he did. Look at this. That, that was kind of fun. This kind of <laughs> level of, you know, of, uh, of, of, you know, of, you know, of fact in his books. Were there a lot of stevedores hanging yeah. out at that bar? Yeah. What's funny is it was all real because it was like a, a few blocks from the waterfront back where the waterfront wow. was a working place. Yeah, it was pretty amazing, you know, and I actually have a nod to that in my next book kind of after that location scouting i kind of have a a scene set in that same fictional bar that goodis had in moon in the gutter as a little tip of the cap you know you know passing it on passing it forward that's awesome about the only equivalent i can think of for us detroit boys is elmore leonard and i know that i've been in several places where he's set various books of his oh yeah he's great too i, I love that i mean we're be, be it detroit or you know florida he's a guy who gets place very well I do. I, really, I, I admire writers, maybe a, a dumb reason, but I admire writers who have a firm sense of place uh, versus ones who just sort of uh, treat it as just a prop, a place, whatever. It doesn't matter where it is. It's a story, which is fine. You can have a great story without a great place, but for me, the place really you know, hammers it home. Yeah, unfortunately, the adaptations of Leonard haven't necessarily been as faithful to Detroit as his books are. Really? Uh, that's a shame. Well, sadly. How about Out of Sight? Did you feel, see any Detroit in that? Or? The best adaptations of Elmore Leonard have been Out of Sight and Jackie Brown, even though Jackie Brown is completely different and has moved from Florida to California. It's yeah. probably the most faithful adaptation, even though he does also change the, the character from, a, I, I believe, a, a young white woman to an older black woman in Jackie Brown. But Out of Sight's probably the best one that was shot in Detroit. The last one they did... And they tried really hard to make it period in the 70s, but it just didn't really work out. And that was Freaky Deaky, which is sad because that's one of my favorite of his books. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I wouldn't watch it. I just read the book. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Are your parents encouraging you to get a college education? Let me kill him! Have we got a school for you? Forget Harvard. Forget Princeton. Learn to earn big bucks fast. Beef plus buttons. Come to Buster Burger University. Fall in over here. And see Hamburger, the motion picture. We're here to learn to run a Buster Burger franchise. A lot of bull in every bite. A lot of bull in every bite. But you'll get more than just an education at Buster Burger U. Are you crazy? You'll be stimulated by a student body that shares your interest. Real neat. You'll find a faculty that really cares about you. On-the-job training will get you ready. Can I Buster help you? For the fast-paced world of fast food. Buster Burger, America's favorite drive through restaurant. Hamburger, the motion picture. It's funny enough to eat. 
That's right. We're wrapping up Noir November this week and next month. We start talking about a few of my favorite films. We start with Hamburger, the motion picture. Get ready to put those cookies back, motherfucker, as we talk about one of the most overlooked and underappreciated sex comedies of the 1980s. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Dwayne Serzinski. Now, Dwayne, you have a new book coming out in February, I understand, called The Canary. What's that one all about, sir? Yes, uh, Canary is about a sweet young girl, a, a student, you know, naive, who becomes a confidential informant for the police, uh, thanks to her boyfriend, who leaves pills in her car. And uh, she's you know, pretty much turned to a CI to flip her boyfriend, but she refuses to give him up, and instead actually hunts real-life drug gangs which does not go well for her. <laughs> so that's out in February. Now, what other stuff? You you have so many pokers in the fire at all times. What other stuff you have going on? Um, actually, I'm working on uh, a new comic called The Black Hood, which is uh, a little bit of good as inspired. Uh, it's set in Philadelphia. This is actually an old Archie Comics character. You know, Actually, it's an old pulp character. Am I saying you know, a cop who wore a mask to fight crime on the side? I turned to a guy who was shot in the face, and is now a painkiller addict and goes downhill from there. He's very much good as character, <laughs> you know, uh, who's a superhero. I try to think of a like, David Good as superhero, and this is what I came up with, you know. So that's fun. And, um, yeah, beyond that, some comics. Um, I'm working on my next novel, which, um, again, I try, try to take inspiration from Goodis and kind of blend that, you know, as much as real life as I can into my weird little, you know, fictional worlds. I mean, just for folks that are listening and stuff, I mean, Dwayne is – done so many different books so many different comic books i mean you've worked on what judge dread and on was it cable right yeah cable one of the x-men x for dark horse he's kind of the one-eyed vigilante uh the classic dark horse character from the 90s godzilla that was a lot of fun that's <laughs> right godzilla a lot of dialogue for that yeah. <laughs> warren you think no actually my, my pitch was okay what if like jason statham versus godzilla what do you think and that was kind of how it turned out to be you know um a very weird, you know, kind of, uh, you know, action comedy with Godzilla in it. And then you have done work with uh, CSI? Well, kind of. I, I did a, a three novels with Anthony Zyker. He created CSI. Uh, very, very dark, you know, kind of police procedural, serial killer, nutcase books. Um, there are some things that I didn't want to write because they were too really creepy. Too, much, too creepy. <laughs> so that was, that was an experience. Is that how that short film came about? Because when I was in, um, just so folks know at home, when I was in Noircon, uh, Lou showed a short film that had something to do with CSI and had your name on it. Oh, yeah. It was actually, that was nothing to do with CSI, but it was, um, for a while there, Anthony Zyker had a kind of a short film series and he asked me to pitch things for it. So I pitched this, you know, weirdo hitman kind of, you know, short that they ended up making with, uh, directed by Lexi Alexander, who uh, directed the very underrated Punisher Warzone. I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, and uh, Green Street Hooligans. So we had a lot of fun. It was my first actual, you know, produced film thing. And that was neat. Um, I was surprised how fast it went from conception to frenzied scripting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, you know, to being shot over three days. I have been wanting to do Punisher Warzone for a long time. Am I right? Great underrated movie? Come on. Underrated. It's so good. I fucking love it. when they're running across the rooftops in slow motion <laughs> yeah. that's the whole movie right there i mean that sold it yep. i just said this is it this is the movie for me so that one of the few films that i've bought over the last year like on blu-ray and was like yep this is the movie for me yeah it just captures the spirit uh of you know garth ennis's you know punisher max run it's just it's, it's mean-spirited you know <laughs> it's it's nasty um and fun it's just sheer fun 
Lexi is great. Lexi is funny. It was recently she cropped up as being rumored to uh, turn down the Wonder Woman adaptation, which I think was never offered it. But she's just great. She's very outspoken about you know uh, you know female directors and female you know talent in the industry, and I just think she's awesome. So I hope to actually do some with her again. Well, thanks again, Dwayne. We'll have links to where people can find Canary and more about you over at our website, projection-booth.com. We want to thank everybody for listening. We've had a lot of fun talking about Films Noir in November, and uh, we're thinking it might become a thing, you know? Maybe uh, a year, well, a year from now, we'll do it again. So if you have suggestions, I think, Rob, you were saying we would, we would do noir from other parts of the world. Foreign noir. Foreign Noir. Sounds like a plan. So we don't have any more theme months scheduled until May when we look at Modi films. Uh, if you want to see what we have coming up, visit our Facebook page or download our free app for your smartphone or Kindle Fire. It is free, so there is no need to steal it.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.